Welcome to Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood, a podcast that's all about changing the way we view midlife and bringing the conversation about menopause out into the open. Each week we share stories, experiences and inspiration. We talk to experts on how to best navigate this time of life and find out how other people have not only survived but thrived through this time. I'm your host, Karen O'Connor. Hello and welcome. Today, I'm really excited to introduce Alexis Wolf. Welcome, Alexis. Thank you for having me. Now, Alexis is CEO of Endometriosis Australia, and it was Endometriosis Awareness Month a couple of months ago, and I was really uh, keen on getting you on board to talk about endometriosis because it's not Again, it's one of those topics that we don't necessarily know a lot about. So I've kind of blurbed and not let you answer that there. So tell me, first of all, go into what is endometriosis and how many people suffer from it? Just give me a few facts and figures and let's start there, if that's all right. Absolutely. Let's, let's hit, the, hit the information where it comes through. So what is endometriosis? So it is an inflammatory disease where tissue that is similar but not the same, similar to the lining of the uterus that grows in other parts of the body outside of the uterus. So what we see is um, things like adhesions and lesions that grow around things like the ovaries or the bladder or the bowel. And it is a really painful disease where people will experience pain that they describe like stabbing, like barbed wire, like someone was punching them in the stomach. And this can not only be at the time of their menstruation, but at any time throughout their cycle. So it's a really debilitating disease for many individuals. It actually affects one in nine women, girls, and those that are gender diverse. So there's approximately 830,000 Australians living with endometriosis right now. That is a huge number. How does that number compare to people who say, have, I don't know, diabetes or heart disease or some kind of cancer? How does that compare? Absolutely. So look, it's, it's comparable with people that would have type 2 diabetes. So if you think about how much we know about diabetes, and yet there's still a lot to know about diabetes indeed, but there is so little known about this disease that affects so many people. And that's really why Endometriosis Australia exists, because we want to find the answers to all of those questions that uh, what we call endo warriors really want to have answered and so that we can give these individuals better treatment options, a faster diagnosis and hopefully one day, you know, in the future, a cure because currently there is no cure for endometriosis. There's a couple of ways I want to go here. The first one is so if there's about the same number as type 2 diabetes, that covers men and women. So in effect, there are twice as many women with endometriosis than with diabetes. That's right. yep. Which is pretty shocking when a lot of people haven't even heard of endometriosis. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we noticed that one of the challenges is that we've got a six and a half year delay for diagnosis. Now, when 
researchers and really fabulous um, medical professionals started looking into this a few years ago. The time to diagnosis was around 12 years. So in the last 20 years, we've brought that down to six and a half, but it's still such a big number. Now, we know that if we could get that number down, we actually hypothesise that probably that number of one in nine is actually higher. God. So why does it take six and a half years to like <laughs> to diagnose something? Why? It seems bizarre, doesn't it, to think that it could take so long to get a diagnosis for something that is so incredibly painful. But what we know is that people normalise period pain. And the rest of the symptoms that are associated with endometriosis are really broad. And so they can be put into a number of different categories. And often an individual get misdiagnosed in the early stages of them seeking medical assistance. So we talk about, okay, a general family, perhaps a young person is starting to menstruate. They are getting incredible amounts of pain. They go to their mother and they say, mum, what can I do? And mum says, oh, I've always had painful periods. So did your grandmother. It's just our family curse. I survived. You'll survive. You just, you know, take some Panadol, put a heat bag on. Let's just ship you off to school. You'll be fine. Now, that is a really common story for individuals where the pain has been normalised within the family unit because those individuals probably never got the support that they needed either. So what we're seeing now is we've got this next generation of people who are really starting to focus on the symptoms and saying, this is not right. The fact that I'm missing out on two, three days of school every month, that I'm not being able to go to work and I'm using all my sick leave, annual leave, unpaid leave, that I can't attend family functions or social outings with my friends. They're actually taking the time and saying, no, this is not right. And they're tracking their symptoms and they're having conversations with their GPs. The trouble had been in the past is that GPs, we're sort of looking at some of these symptoms and, again, thinking that period pain was just normal, but also some of the other symptoms that you might have with endometriosis are things like pain during bowel movements, pain during urination. You might have pain associated with intercourse, bloating, fatigue, headaches. All of these things can lead you off into a number of different diagnoses. But many people have been misdiagnosed with things like irritable bowel symptom um, syndrome. And then they think that they need to just constrict their diet and that that's going to solve everything, but it doesn't. And then they, they go off on this, you know, tangent for years trying to just alleviate their symptoms through diet alone, thinking that that's going to help when actually they've got this horrendous disease that's just growing inside them and actually they need much more support from medical professionals in terms of what other alternatives they can use. How do you actually test for endometriosis? It's a great question and there are lots of different avenues that we would like to explore in the future, but technically the only way that you can be diagnosed with endometriosis is through a laparoscopy. Uh, so that is keyhole surgery that is where they go through your belly button and then a couple of other incisions around your abdomen where they will take a piece of the tissue that they suspect is endometriosis and they will test that in a laboratory to actually confirm the diagnosis. 
Now, what we know is that that is a really invasive way to actually get a diagnosis of a disease. Because this affects so many people at many different stages of their lives, we've got 13-year-old young people who are thinking, oh, well, the only way I can get a diagnosis is through surgery. Now, we'd like to look at other options, and we know that there's some really great advancements in imaging. So in particular, ultrasound and also emerging is MRI. So we know that with the different types of disease in terms of its stages, it goes in stages one, two, three, and four, you know, from least advanced to most advanced. Generally speaking, we can see stages three and four when it's really pronounced on an ultrasound. And that can be really reassuring for an individual to say, okay, it's not all in my head. I'm not making this up. The person that is my doctor, they can actually see this disease and we can start talking about options. Now, that is a much more cost-effective and less invasive way to get a diagnosis but imaging is not perfect. And we know that there are many people who go and have imaging and the person says there's nothing there. And then when they do go and have a laparoscopy, that endometriosis is found. So we've got so much further to go in terms of how we can get a better diagnosis opportunity for endometriosis patients. But at the moment, if you are really definitively wanting to have that diagnosis, it is only through surgery. It's really interesting. What causes endometriosis in the first place? Million dollar question. (laughs) We don't know. It is something that is still hypothesized by many different individuals and we don't know that answer yet. So there's lots of different um, options out there and there's many studies that are trying to look at the different types of endometriosis. As I mentioned, there's stages one to four, but there are some people, for example, that will potentially go and have a laparoscopy where they'll have an excision or an ablation surgery So that's either cutting it out or burning it off. And they never get symptoms after that. That's an amazing result. But we know, on the other hand, there are people who are doing the exact same type of surgery who've actually had 9, 13 surgeries over their lifetime and that the endometriosis continues to grow back. We hypothesise globally that there is different type of tissues and disease within endometriosis some which grow back some which don't and we still don't know which ones are which so there's so much work that needs to be done in terms of research to understand that because putting people into surgery every you know 12 to 18 months to reduce their symptoms because they're just so debilitating and having these very invasive surgeries can't be the solution for endo warriors across the globe. We need other options. Um, And so we're all desperately working with researchers to try and find out what they can be. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because as you're talking, I'm doing the maths in my head. I'm saying between 10 and 15% of women get endometriosis at one level or another and we don't know what causes it we don't know how to fix it we don't really know much about it it isn't even really spoken about 
And I find that quite amazing because if that was across the general population, same with diabetes, there would be a massive uproar. But we do as women. I know my daughters, I suspect the younger one of my daughters might have endometriosis. I never had a problem with my period. She normalizes it. So she's like, oh, I'm just in pain. I'll take some Panadol and and. I picked her up from school one time towards the end of last year and she was literally incapacitated. She couldn't carry anything. She couldn't do anything. And I took her to see the doctor, but it took her four months to get in to see a gynecologist. And that was a video conference because the gyne is so busy. And that ended up being cancelled. And my daughter's just gone, it's too hard. Yeah, absolutely. And this is not an uncommon um, situation. We have so many people with this disease and with increasing awareness they're wanting to get answers but we don't necessarily have the healthcare system to actually enable treating 830,000 Australians given that it's also a lifelong disease it's not something that can just be treated and then they move off the list they stay on the list for their entire lifetime so we have a healthcare system that's just starting to take notice and to really empathize and understand this disease but it's going to take time for us to be able to service that many individuals and so you're right you get your initial consultation with your GP and then if they do refer you on to a gynecologist those waiting times are quite quite long and then if you need surgery on top of that depending on whether that is a public or private option depending on your circumstances it's again another waiting list. So when you think about how long it takes to get a diagnosis of six and a half years, you will start doing the math and understanding, okay, well, I had to wait for my GP, then I had to wait for my gynae, then I had to wait for my surgery. And that's all before you've actually put all of the symptoms together and and had a bit of a conversation with someone and said, actually, I'm not doing well. I need to have further investigations done. So it's a lifelong disease. So even if you, and I, and I did have somebody on an endometriosis suffer a few months ago, and she said people or some doctors and some women think that having a hysterectomy can solve the problem, but it actually doesn't. Actually doesn't. Does, does anything stop it? Does, so obviously menopause isn't going to have an impact on it or not much of an impact then, is it? Because the hormones have changed and I don't know what... Yeah, so again, this is, um, it comes down to the myth. So we talk about, as you rightly pointed out, we've got this disease that affects so many people, but it hasn't necessarily been given the airtime that it needs around education and awareness. That's what we're here for and that's what we're trying to work towards. But we know that many people have tried to treat endometriosis with a hysterectomy. But as I explained at the beginning of this podcast, The definition of endometriosis is tissue that is similar to the lining of the uterus that grows outside of the uterus. So for people whose endometriosis grows outside, that could be on ovaries, as I mentioned, it could be on the bowel, it could be on the bladder. We've also found endometriosis in the lung tissue, in the muscle around the heart, in nerves, in the brain. It's a whole body disease in terms of where this disease can travel to. So yes, for some people, when they do have a hysterectomy, 
if they're taking out some of those other organs like ovaries and tubes and things where their endometriosis was growing and causing them a lot of pain, then their symptom load might be reduced but it does not cure endometriosis and those other symptoms will still persist and the disease still can grow because it's in other parts of your body. Hysterectomy is currently the treatment option for those that have adenomyosis. So this is what we call the cousin of endometriosis. So adenomyosis is where the tissue inside the lining of the uterus is affected. And so, of course, if you remove the uterus, then you remove that element of the problem. But if you've got young people who are diagnosed with adenomyosis, then they need to really consider what the health impacts are for having a hysterectomy so early. There's increase in stroke, there's increase in heart disease. It's not something to be considered lightly. And also too, some people do want to have a family. So how do we support people through that part of their journey? I'm finding this really fascinating. So the little endometriosis cells, once they get out, that's it, they're rampant. There's basically no stopping them. So if they're already on another organ like the liver or the bowel or something, it's very difficult to remove that. Is that right? Yes. And look, there are other treatments. We've got hormonal treatments that can help to reduce the symptom load and to quieten down the growth of endometriosis, but it doesn't remove it. And and for some people, hormonal treatments are absolutely non-effective. So it's not a catch-all for people. And it also comes with other risks in terms of options around blood clotting. And, you know, anyone who goes on, you know, a pill gets given a list of all of the things that, um, you know, that could possibly go go wrong. (laughs) We don't really want to be advocating that that is the only option for endometriosis patients either. You know, particularly those who are wanting then to potentially start a family because you need to come off those drugs. So then what's going to happen to your body after that? And we have a lot of endo warriors who really struggle because for them, some of the hormonal treatments have been effective in suppressing their symptoms. And then when they do decide to have a family and they need to come off them, there's this huge amount of fear, you know, their pain gets out of control. And then we also have the added layer of some individuals actually struggling with fertility because of their endometriosis. So it actually um, hampers their ability to naturally conceive and that affects one in three endo warriors. So it's still a staggering amount of people who are having trouble with their fertility and balancing all of these different treatment options, which, you know, none of them are perfect, but we're working towards trying to find as many options as possible to help individuals because something that works for one person may not work for another, but we try and at least offer as many as possible to see what works for individuals. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think women's hormones are so not misunderstood, but not understood in the impact that it has on how the rest of the body functions and what happens when you take uh, certain medications, because if your hormones are at different levels and everybody's, every woman's different, then you've got no idea what your reaction's going to be. So this comes down to, in a way, that basic issue of still not understanding how female hormones impact the whole body and nervous system and everything else. Absolutely. But also I think 
individuals not really understanding their bodies in general and just thinking that so many of these things are normal when they're not. And also having those discussions within your peer groups, your families, so much of it has just been swept under the rug as just, you know, women's business and not to be spoken about, you know, for fear of, of looking weak. Now, endo warriors are anything but weak with the amount of pain that they are going through with the mental turmoil that they have in terms of getting a diagnosis, dealing with pain, managing schedules to try and predict when their pain is going to be terrible. You know, endo warriors plan holidays around when they think they're going to have an endo flare. They take jobs based on how they think they're going to be able to service that job. Now, we want to ensure that people are not missing out, that they're able to go to school, that they're able to have any job that they want to have and not be hampered by this, this fear that they don't understand how their body's going to react to, to pain that day. Um, hopefully in the future we'll start to see that there's a lot more talk around hormones in general men and women, but particularly women, because they just change so often. And this is not really taught in school. It's very glossed over. And so, you know, we're um, a really strong advocate of um, a program that's called Pep Talk that's um, run from the Pelvic Pain Foundation of Australia. They're doing a school's education program around pelvic pain and endometriosis. And that's going to be really effective in terms of educating our young people as to what is normal, what isn't, and so that they can actually start to get a deeper understanding of their body and that they're not having these big epiphanies in their 30s and 40s, which many of us are all starting to have. So I didn't learn that at school. <laughs> friend, friend goes, I read an article the other day that said X, Y, Z. You're like, oh, is that true? Is that not true? You know, there's so much mis misinformation out there. But if we can start actually having better conversations with young people at school, both men and women, then we're going to have a better opportunity in the future for people to have a deeper understanding of their bodies. Yeah, I mean, I talk about women because it's happening to women, but I'm really keen, like I've got two boys and two girls. <laughs> They're in their 20s now, so they're not boys and girls, but you know what I mean. And I feel like my eldest son said to me, I want to know what my wife is going to be going through in menopause. We were having the menopause conversation so that I know how to deal with it and I can understand it because if he doesn't understand, then he's not going to have any idea of what's happening to her and he wants to support her he wants to understand her so I think it's so important rather than just getting off that old oh she's hysterical it's her hormones we really do have to get past that because we do normalize pain and discomfort yeah. and that whole pain management thing is a completely different thing I had pelvic mesh and before I had it removed a couple of years ago, I went on a persistent pain management program. And 90% of persistent pain sufferers are women. <laughs> and that does not surprise me. 
because we know that women, when they present with pain, are less believed than a man that presents with pain. And that has been reported to be shown across the globe. We often joke in the endo world, how many different treatment options are there for erectile dysfunction versus how many treatment options there are for endometriosis. Now, if, as you were pointing out earlier, if this was to affect men as well, it would be something that would be much higher on the agenda. But we know that we are never going to give up in terms of our advocacy, in terms of our education and awareness, and it'll take time, but we will get we will get our numbers up. We will make sure that for the next generation of young people that there are going to be better treatment options, that there is going to be higher understanding, that all family groups are going to be able to understand how to support endo warriors, um, that employers know how to support and support endo warriors, and you know that we don't see such disadvantage that we do have with with people where their symptoms are just so out of control that they're missing out on school work and and relationships. To your point, you know it's so fabulous that your son is really keen to understand about how he would support his partner. And we know that many endo warriors, particularly in their early stages of dating, they really struggle to find someone who understands what they're going through because there is such a lack of education. But when they do find that perfect match, it can be life-changing because they've got that support network with someone that can just help them in their day-to-day, in their month-to-month in terms of the different changes that they might be experiencing. Just even someone to come to a, to a medical appointment to tell them that they're okay and that it's not all in their head and they acknowledge the pain. All of those things can be really, really positive to help an endo-warrior not feel so isolated. Talk to me about endo-warrior. Where did that come from? Yeah, look, it's a word um, or a sentence that we like to use for multiple different reasons. Part of it, I think, is because as a collective we have been fighting to get recognised for this condition. And individuals that have endometriosis, they do carry on. They get through their day. They still attend work. They still go to school. You know, they will work as hard as they can to still participate in life. And and that's a quality of a warrior, you know, someone that just persists and carries on. We also like using the word endo-warrior because it's inclusive. So as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, endometriosis affects women, girls, and those who are gender diverse. So, you know, there are a lot of people who don't identify as women who do have endometriosis. And so utilising the wording of endo-warriors is a great way to not only empower them, but also to be very inclusive for all the people that this impacts. I could go off on such a tangent here. So gender diverse is, do you mean, explain that to me. Yeah, so, you know, people um, that perhaps they were assigned female at birth but who don't identify as female now. So we want to make sure that as an advocacy group that we're being respectful and that we're being inclusive for people who who identify as a different gender um, or no gender at all. So we, 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 we make sure that where we can that we use inclusive language. It can be a little bit tricky when we're talking about research because a lot of the research has only been done on inverted commas women and so it can be a bit challenging to be able to always utilize 
inclusive language, but we do want to make sure that we're representing all of the people that are impacted by endometriosis. A bit like breast cancer, you know, there was a strong thought that breast cancer only affected women, but actually it also affects men. So there has been um, conversation that has been undertaken with breast cancer organisations and now you see quite often that men will also feature in some of their um, their advertising and awareness campaigns, which is, is great. This is purely a women's disease. It's not, it doesn't affect men. Like if breast cancer does, this doesn't, this one particularly doesn't. Look, there have been some very small reported cases of it affecting men, but after very specific scenarios where they were receiving a certain type of treatment. So we're talking maybe 14 reported cases in the world. So at this stage, it's very much focused on on females. Um, and, you know, but in the future, who knows how how many more people might actually be affected by this once we start to learn and understand a bit more about the, the actual disease itself and, and what causes it and why it grows and who's impacted by it. Because where I went when you were talking about gender diverse was does it affect, has it affected men who've transitioned to women? And, and if so, like, is it... What hormone causes it? Like, would that help pinpoint it? That was where I went. I was like, yeah, no, so no, that. that's, that's, that's <laughs> certainly not the case. Not the case at all. That's really interesting. And you actually had endometriosis, didn't you? Oh, you yeah, do no, have. I have endometriosis, yes. So my mother was also diagnosed with endometriosis and we suspect that my grandmother uh, also had it Um but I guess given her generation, it was it was a little bit uh, less spoken about. So, yeah, I officially was diagnosed in 2018, 2019, uh, when I finally, I guess, put together all of my symptoms. And I think the challenging part with my mum and, and her diagnosis was that she was also very misinformed as well in terms of what some of the symptoms were and, and how it could be treated. So, I didn't necessarily realise my, even myself in those early stages that all of these other things that were happening to me were all connected to endometriosis. And it wasn't until I was many years down the track of trying to conceive that, that we started to get some, some answers. So I'm also the one in three endometriosis individuals who is impacted by infertility. So I have had to go down the IVF route and that is also not a great thing for people to have to contend with. Not only have you got endometriosis, but then you're also trying to go down assisted reproductive technology. Um, it can be really challenging, but I'm very pleased to report today that I'm happily pregnant with a little girl who's, who's hopefully joining us in a few weeks. I am so excited to be birthing this, this lovely little human, but at the same time, I, I do have reservations in the fact that she's female. And knowing my family history, that it is very strong, that endometriosis has the genetic link within my family, that I might pass that down to her. So I think there are so many endo warriors who we recognise that there might not be the dramatic change in the way that we can treat endometriosis right now but we want it to be better for our next generation for for our kids that they might actually have a better option and I think also too given that we all know that we've got it 
we're going to be onto symptoms like a hawk. <laughs> we're going to be monitoring these things and really making sure that any of our children that do present with, with symptoms are looked at much earlier. Um, and that's all because of awareness and education. And so that's why the work of Endometriosis Australia is so important because we, we help to provide that bridge in terms of factual information and demystifying the myths so that, you know, the next generation get a better better chance. What support do you get once you've been diagnosed with endometriosis? What Because I'm just thinking of the emotional and, and mental challenges of dealing with the pain, whether it's, and that was the other thing I was going to ask you, flare-ups. Can you talk to me about flare-ups as well? But what support do you get when you diagnose with endometriosis? Because it is a persistent pain. Thing, isn't it it's absolutely so yeah so you, so most endo warriors will be working with their gp and or their gynecologist to also think about okay well how else is this impacting their life many people will um will actually seek out a mental health plan because of the pain um, that they're experiencing and the impact that that's having on potentially depression anxiety stress so it's very common for people to to also have that that support of either a psychologist or psychiatrist and particularly ones that help with pain management because we know that for some people that can be really effective in terms of helping to have some good coping strategies to reduce some of the um, sensation of pain but also just dealing with so many medical appointments, it can be incredibly overwhelming for people. You know, that plus life, you know, trying to study, trying to live your life, wanting to go travelling and having all of these obstacles in your way, it can really be overwhelming. So we we really support and advocate for people to, to reach out and, and to get mental health care plans with their GPs and to find someone that they can trust and talk to. It's not always easy to find that person straight up, so don't give up. If, there's, if you don't click with the first person that you meet, you know, try another person or another person. And, and recommendations from friends are always really good. You know, we're getting better at talking about mental health within our friendship groups. So it's really a great place to start thinking about, well, hey, do you see a psychologist? Who do you see? Do you like them? Do you think that I would like them? And, and kind of getting a referral that way as well because, you know, we don't want people to be suffering any more than they need to. So then to your second point around endo flares, these are pain flares that generally come out of nowhere. So that's why they're called a flare. And then generally also because we feel like they, for an endo warrior, it feels like they've just been completely unpredicted. So it's not necessarily happening during menstruation. It's happening at some other time. And it could be because they went for a light walk yesterday and that pain sensation has flared it up. And people experience and, and talk about their bellies going from being a normal belly, what, whatever that belly looks like for them, and then looking five months pregnant. That's how much the inflammation in their body is reacting and that their body is just expanding because it's trying to fight this inflammation and it can't. So people end up, you know, trying to do all these remedies of either taking pain medication if they've um, been offered that by their medical professional they might be doing heat, they might be doing some light stretching, 
uh, trying to sleep. TENS machines have become very popular in terms of trying to reduce pain. And then, you know, wearing loose clothing. So we certainly saw that during the pandemic when it first started and people started being able to work from home, these pain flares were something that were really unpredictable for endo warriors and would generally mean that they would need to miss out on school or work because they wouldn't be able to move. They need to be in a more comfortable position, wearing tracky pants and getting their heat bag and just really relaxing their belly as much as possible. Whereas with the work from home or even schooling from home options, it provided so much flexibility and it meant that people were able to either adjust their hours slightly and say, look, instead of starting at nine o'clock, I'm going to start at 10. I'm just going to sit here and just relax my belly. And then, yep, I'm feeling okay. My pain's under control. I can jump on the laptop and start working rather than having to have a whole day of work. So there have been some really positive benefits. And we actually did some research at the end of last year around the workplace and endometriosis. And flexibility was one of the biggest things that they thought was advantageous for them because it meant that they were able to think about their pain management and also still contribute to work without having to take unpaid leave. On the flip side of that, when there wasn't those flexible options, people reported that one in six had lost their jobs and one in three had been turned over for promotion. So this is all because of the stigma of them managing a really troublesome health condition where they're not able to predict their symptoms and they have to take some time off work. And the perception inside some offices is that those people are lazy, that they're not committed to their work, that they're just taking the mickey. Oh, they're always taking sick days. It's like, yes, because they're actually quite sick. They're not just not just bludging. You know, if it just happens to fall on a Friday that they are, you know, having an endo flare, it's not because they want a long weekend. They're going to be spending that whole weekend in bed. So, you know, that's why Endometriosis Australia is actually partnering with a number of other organisations and we're actually starting to develop some tools around how endo warriors and their employers can have a better conversation around endometriosis in the workplace and start to really support those individuals because we know that people want to work, people want to contribute, and they shouldn't be held back for something that they have no control over. But we do need to help them in terms of having those conversations to make sure that they're constructive and safe and, you know, collaborative and that we can therefore have endometriosis patients working in any type of work rather than them feeling like they're restricted to certain type of work. So tell me, because I'm going to start wrapping up now, this has been fabulous. How can people get in touch with you and how can they support you? What kind of support do you need? Absolutely. So um, biggest thing is anyone who is experiencing symptoms um, or any family members or friends Our website is an amazing resource of factual information. So endometriosisaustralia.org, visit the website. There is a plethora of of blogs that have been written by medical professionals. There's blogs that have been written by other endo warriors so that you can feel less alone. But we've got videos on what is endometriosis, how is it treated, um, you know, the different types of endometriosis and where it can grow so many different options so the website's a really great 
um, tool. We also have a podcast called Living with Endo. So this is a great one for when you're on on the move, you're on the train to work, or you know you might be doing a workout at the gym. Listening to the podcast is great. Again, we have lots of stories from medical professionals and just endo warriors about their experience, about different treatment options, and it's a nice way for people to digest information if they don't necessarily love to read on a website. They want to be more active while they're listening and and digesting that information that way. Socials is obviously great. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. We're very prominent on those spaces. And we also do have really strong relationships with researchers across the country. So we really want to make sure that Ender Warriors can participate in research about endometriosis. So the research is not always run by us. It's run by universities and other health professionals. But we are the conduit to try and connect those researchers with patients so that if they want to participate, that they can. So coming to our socials and to our website, you'll always be able to see all the different research opportunities that are available. Some of them require a really short period of time. So you can complete a survey in 20 minutes. Others, it might be that you know, it's actually a phone interview or it's something that we're going to do a bit more of a longitudinal study. So it might be that they have to check in with you every six months to see how you're progressing. But all of these things really help the entire sector around endometriosis to get better results and for us to try and understand how we can help endometriosis patients now and then how we can also help them in the future. So They're all great things. For people who are wanting to donate or to fundraise, then our website has lots of different options. We welcome donations from all of our Endo Warriors and from the public and any philanthropists out there who are passionate about women's health and think that the numbers that we've spoken about today are staggering and shocking and that they should be changed. We do too. So we'd love to work with more partners to to get that done. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. No, thank you for having me today. It's been a really lovely conversation. And good luck with the forthcoming birth of your daughter. Congratulations on that. Thank you very much. I hope that uh, she's she's going to cooperate and uh, let me finish a little bit more work before she arrives. (laughs) Thanks so much. Good luck. for joining us this week on menopause marriage and motherhood make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite player and while you're at it we'd love you to leave us a rating on itunes or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show that would be amazing too be sure to tune in next week for the next episode and remember if you're busy thinking about what you can't have how on earth are you going to enjoy what you can have see you next week